Hey, Tim. Uh, hey, Gabe, what's up? Uh, remember that time you had me on the show and I was talking about launching the Super Critical Angle of Attack podcast where we pick apart airplane nonsense? Uh, yeah? Why? Alright, well, I was watching this movie Air Force One, which got me thinking, why make your own podcast when you can simply murder a Russian news crew, steal their identities, infiltrate the Secret Service, take the first family hostage, and then hijack your friend's podcast? Gabe... I don't know what your angle is here. It definitely feels like an attack, and it's most definitely a super critical one. Thank you for joining us. I have decided that it is April 1st, 2020, and this will be the day that I assume control of this podcast. I am taking control. Forget the super critical podcast and whatever that nuclear stuff that Tim wants to talk about with, with nuclear weapons and movies. It is time to launch the super critical angle of attack podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays aircraft, flying, and aviation in general. I am your host, Gabe, someone who works in the aviation business and flies aircraft on the weekend for fun. Uh, I'm joined here over Skype by Tim, my co-host Tim today. Uh, we're in our basements uh, practicing social distancing as we weather out coronavirus. Hey, Tim. Hey, what's up? Hey, um, so uh, Tim, why are you qualified to be on the Super Critical Angle of Attack podcast on April 1st? Well, I didn't know I'd have to answer this question because I was here to talk about a nuke movie. I guess I'll run with this because uh, you because you're holding holding me hostage here. <laughs> Before uh, the coronavirus, I was a frequent flyer of airplanes. Right, I got that. I occasionally go flying with you. Um, I used to read airplane books a lot as a kid. I go to the Air and Space Museum quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, probably the main reason is that you're holding me hostage and won't let me go to see my family. But, you know, what do you hope to accomplish in this podcast? What is the super critical angle of attack that you're now going to take over, apparently, moving forward? Well, I want to—I really want to get into the minutia. I've been watching all these movies that have airplanes as plot devices, and it just—it's really been grinding my landing gears to steal <laughs> a pun from oh. the pun master. Uh, okay, so, yeah— uh, Critical angle of attack is an aviation term. It's basically the the angle at which a uh, a wing will stall. So many, much like these terrible movies that or that portray aviation terribly that stall themselves. I thought that would be a good name for the podcast and and good uh, good segue from the the former super critical podcast. All right. Well, we often watch movies that have nukes as the the plot, or we used to anyways, before this uh, takeover, and they had some element of airplane stuff in them. Is there at least a movie we can talk about for the time being that has some nuke content plus aviation things? I'm glad you asked, Tim. Today we're going to watch the 1997 thriller classic Air Force One. This is a uh, movie in which terrorists take over the eponymous U.S. presidential executive airplane with President James Marshall, played by Harrison Ford, and his family on board. This was directed by Wolfgang Peterson, also known for Das Boot, exclamation point afterwards, Outbreak, Troy, and Neverending Story. Have you seen any of those uh, movies, Tim? I've seen, I think I've seen all of these, and Outbreak is particularly uh, relevant these days, I guess. Yeah, that's true. But uh, yeah, Das Boot is a pretty good movie, too, but because it is not about a nuclear-armed submarine, I, I just don't want to talk about it. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I mentioned Harrison Ford as President James Marshall. Harrison Ford's a pilot in, in real life, too. I think this, uh, this role was originally written for Kevin Costner. Yeah, they kicked um, him off because he wasn't a pilot. He couldn't really do the role all that well. 
he, he couldn't accurately pretend not to be able to fly the plane in a convincing <laughs> way. Exactly. We have Gary Oldman as terrorist Ivan Korshunov. Glenn Close as Vice President Catherine Bennett. She was apparently a last-minute casting change. Uh, a few other people, William H. Macy, and then the names get less well-known. Jurgen Prochnow. Yeah, Jurgen, man. He uh, he plays Russian general an Ivan Radic. So there's there's two Ivans in this movie. It's uh, too many Ivans, really. And this is just like, I felt like there were a lot of these people that you see in these generic government movies. A lot of those people who play like you know cabinet members and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I just noticed a lot of those. Well, one of my um, one of my favorite actors, Dean Stockwell, plays the Department of Defense chief. He also is in my uh, favorite TV show for a long time, which was Quantum Leap. Oh, nice! I'm always glad to see him pop up in positions of authority. Awesome, awesome. So, so Tim, how did this movie do at the box office back in 1997? Uh, well, it did okay. Uh, you know, it, it made over $315 million on a $35 million budget. It's funny to think that action movies used to be that low in terms of their budget, but it did pretty good. But for some reason, it's uh, still flying under the radar uh... on Rotten Tomatoes with a score of uh, just about 76%. Some people apparently don't like this movie. I mean, 1997, I still remember it pretty well. I think I was in middle school. Um, it was kind of like that nice time before... 9-11 when we didn't have to worry about uh, terrorism that much and there were these it was still kind of rogue soviet general seems to be the villain of the day yeah it's the between the wars period of the 90s right kind of right after the end of the cold war seems like the the nuclear danger of the cold war uh, the brinksmanship it seemed like it calmed down quite a bit uh, we had gotten rid of a bunch of nuclear weapons around the world and but then terrorism uh, starts to kind of pop up until 9-11 when it's all radically changes everybody's perception of the world so that is that very interesting time period and then you also see a lot of movies in that time period action films like we something we've even covered on the previously uh mentioned uh now dead super critical podcast movies like uh mission impossible independence day armageddon like movies where you know you'd have a new plot in them but they would just be kind of a macguffin it wouldn't be a major element of it it wouldn't be like the cold war russia u.s end of the world may happen unless we you know solve the plot problem it's more like well nukes are there but we're going to use them in kind of a fun way like to destroy an asteroid or to attack the aliens it's a very different time period that we're currently in a more gentle type of nuclear nuclear weapons use Mm mm-hmm I, what I like about this movie is it kind of harkens to the like the Die Hard action thing where there's like the lone guy who's taking on a group of terrorists and somehow is able to like infiltrate and kill like 20 terrorists without them you know figuring it out until the end. Uh, yeah, you know it's a, a strong strong U.S. leadership, strong U.S. president uh, in these kind of movies. This one and even in Independence Day at the at the time, people like President Clinton uh, really enjoyed the these kind of movies because uh, it made the office have a bit more of a fun kick to it. Yeah, exactly. Why don't we run through the plot of the movie as usual? Spoiler alert! If you haven't seen it yet, press the pause button. Go on. Uh, I think Prime Video is where I watched it, but uh, it's available in a number of different places. And Tim, since our roles are reversed a little bit, uh, why don't you uh, why don't you take us through the plot here? Sure, and of course I'll I'll do this, but I'm, this is not I'm not consenting to any of this really. But I will uh, just go ahead and follow along here. Uh, this I'll, I'll I'll see how this plays out. So American special forces, kind of out of nowhere, uh, go in to capture uh, the guy we mentioned earlier, the evil General Ivan Radic. He's currently the dictator of Kazakhstan, and it's hard to tell at this point because it's like a nighttime uh, fight where you just have helicopters land and start shooting, but basically look like art guards, and it's yeah. hard to tell who the good guys and the bad guys are 
but we learn pretty quickly because the other guy has a Russian accent that he's the bad guy. And we learn a little bit later on in this really cool scene where the the U.S. president and the Russian president are in a like a big banquet hall. They're, they're just a big speech, lots of clapping, and the U.S. president is speaking. And we learn that Ivan Radek had formerly been in the Soviet Union. He was a bad general. He gone rogue. He went into Kazakhstan. He had all of these nuclear weapon stockpiles in uh-huh. Kazakhstan, and he was going right. to do something really evil with them. He was going to bring back the Cold War, right? Apprehended the self-proclaimed leader of Kazakhstan, General Ivan Radik. The forces of Radik were directed towards the suppression of democracy. His nuclear arsenal could have brought the world into a new Cold War. But thanks to the support of one of the world's greatest leaders, Radik is now in prison. Tim, this is an airplane podcast now, but maybe we we can have some brief. Uh, we can we can go down this avenue. I'll allow it. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll then I'll stay on the podcast. So this is an interesting time period, as we mentioned. You know, the the end of the Cold War. Uh, the Russians, and as the so- the Soviet Union, they had a ton of nuclear weapons kind of stationed everywhere around throughout the Soviet Union. You know, places that now were no longer part of the Soviet Union, but you can get in a truck and decide, okay, I'm going back to Russia. But nuclear weapons don't just do that on their own. You know, you put them in a you put them in the ground, you put them in a storage unit when you're trying to get the heck out of Dodge uh, or the heck out of uh, Kiev. You don't put them also in your truck because it takes a while. Uh, so what ended up happening was there were all of these. New nuclear weapons left in Kazakhstan that formerly were belonged to Russia and now I guess were the owners were with Kazakhstan people countries like Kazakhstan uh Ukraine and Belarus they had at that point now 3000 what were called strategic nuclear weapons the ones that often are used against cities and larger targets uh the big ones the the megaton bombs the multi, the the kiloton bombs but when the Soviet Union dissolved there were even 1410 strategic nuclear warheads just in Kazakhstan alone including an undisclosed number of tactical nuclear weapons and to put that into perspective the United States currently has around that amount just in its own in terms of what's called uh strategic warheads that are operational meaning they're on a, uh, a missile or they're in a submarine or they're ready to go in a, in, a, in a bomber. That's a lot of weapons to all of a sudden just give to a new country who is by itself is also trying to come up out of a, out of the ground, be its own thing. Um, these weapons were on SS-18 inter- intercontinental ballistic missiles. They were on cruise missiles that could be carried by uh, these large heavy bombers. And the Soviet Union also had one of its major nuclear weapon testing sites in Kazakhstan at Semiplans. So so what, what was, I mean, what was the solution to this? I'm assuming we didn't just uh, we weren't cool with having all these like nuclear weapons piled up in this they all just ended up on ebay that's what the the (laughs) dot-com bust was um was when they ran out no uh what what do they do about it so the big solution what was ultimately negotiated was was called the lipson protocol uh which was signed in spain in 1992 uh this was paired very nicely with the start one treaty that was originally between the united states and russia what Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Belarus agreed to do was to get rid of their nuclear weapons. Now, Kazakhstan was very eager to give these weapons back to Russia. They did not want them there. It was It's incredibly costly to maintain and secure all of these nuclear weapons, and they just wanted to get rid of them. But Ukraine and Belarus, however, kind of dragged their feet. They were more reluctant, uh, whether they thought they could get benefits in terms of security to say, look, now we have nuclear weapons. Russia, stop trying to become the Soviet Union again and stay out of our territory. Or they thought they could maybe use them as leverage in negotiations with the West and Russia 
maybe get some extra funding, some security guarantees, some assurances that Russia won't invade, or that if they do, the United States will come in and support them. All of these things negotiated, and it took a really long time, but ultimately all nuclear weapons were removed from these countries and returned to the Russian Federation by April 1995 uh, from Kazakhstan, and then all of them from Belarus and Ukraine as well the following year. Why do we get rid of them that way? I mean, the concern was a little bit less about uh, some sort of new rogue general in uh, Kazakhstan, what they would do with the arsenal. It was more about like loose nuclear weapons, who could maybe steal them and sell them to Al-Qaeda or some sort of other, you know, rogue state. Yeah, it's kind of like telling that uh, Kazakhstan was also used as the butt of a joke in, you know, the, the later Borat movie that came out. And like that kind of tells you Kazakhstan got used two very different ways in two different <laughs> movies um yeah it's kind of confusing i think there should have been a reference in borat to be like we used to have nukes <laughs> <laughs> this is because of james marshall <laughs> that's a horrible borat accent anyway okay so so uh james marshall is we we find out through this speech there's this nuclear threat what else is marshall kind of you know what, what's he saying about about the whole situation well he pledges uh to uh, take the United States, change its policy towards terrorists instead of, well, let's see what happens when a terrorist uh, takes an airplane over or uh, has hostages somewhere. We may negotiate, we may not. James Marshall commits the United States if there are a terrorist organization anywhere, if anyone is oppressing people anywhere, we are out to get Real you. Real peace. It's not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of justice. And tonight I come to you with a pledge to change America's policy. Never again will I allow our political self-interest to deter us from doing what we know to be morally right. Atrocity and terror are not political weapons. And to those who would use them, your day is over. We will never negotiate. We will no longer tolerate and we will no longer be afraid. It's your turn to be afraid. And uh, I always like remember that quote because Joel, who was my first uh, podcast co-host, he would never do what you're doing, by the way. Um, <laughs> this was Joel's favorite quote in a movie. Got him into studying uh, counterterrorism in undergrad, which is where you met him. But uh, but this movie is not about nuclear weapons. It's about airplanes, and in particular, one very special airplane. And I think almost immediately, right, they get uh, the first family gets gets taken off to the airport. Yeah, and uh, we we meet um, the the first lady. We meet the the first daughter, and a bunch of other aides are going on to Air Force One for the flight home. Uh, we're introduced to a cast of characters, including uh, Gary Oldman uh, as a. Uh, like a news crew, a Russian news crew to kind of do a little bit of like a soft B-roll, soft spot interviews with people on Air Force One. Kind of a small role for him. Usually he plays like the main character in a movie. So I don't know. It's yeah. kind of interesting casting for him so far, at least in this movie, he just kind of just plays a Russian news crew guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, nothing suspicious there at all. No, uh, but yeah, we we do we are introduced to the grand uh, scene of Air Force One. What did you think about this when you're first introduced to uh, to Air Force One? Did you go, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah? I mean, I I we'll get into it more later. I mean, once once you kind of get into the nitpicking, it, it falls apart a little. But no, I thought they did a good job with this scene. I mean, it's like there's all these guards standing at parade rest and. There's all this equipment and vehicles that you get the sense that this is a very important airplane, that something big is, you know, is happening there. If you say Air Force One to most people, they know what you're talking about. Jeff Underwood, historian at the National Museum of the United States Air Force near Dayton, Ohio, he says about the airplane, that airplane represents every American and 
it's a symbol of our republic. People see it as an extension not only of the president, but the United States. It has a visceral national pride sort of thing. So I think the movie did a good job kind of living up to what people would be expecting. Okay. Well, you can see why that Russian news crew um, is decided that it wants to go on a tour of Air, of Air Force One. A harmless tour. Yep. They're led on a tour by the deputy press secretary, which I guess gives out tours. And one of my favorite lines in that is that the deputy press secretary tries to boast about the Air Force One and says that it is hardened against the, quote, the pulse of a nuclear well, blast. Teachers are classified, but I can tell you that it's bullet resistant and that it's even protected against the pulse of a nuclear blast. I'm not sure that's very comforting. <laughs> uh, and what, that? Yeah, the, what does that mean? I, I was wondering that myself. The pulse of a nuclear blast. You know, it's a, you, you take a nuclear blast, you put your, your, your finger on its pulse, and okay, you, you okay. check it against a clock uh, that stopped because, you know, a nuclear bomb went off. Uh, no, pulse here means electromagnetic pulse, uh, which is something that happens when nuclear weapons are detonated at very high altitude. The gamma rays can mess with the atmosphere, and if you have a, a bomb go off really high up in the atmosphere, all of the gamma rays go down, and they can really affect and destroy electronic equipment, mostly by frying the batteries, the computer chips, the electrical wiring. They cause voltage and currency spikes. But fortunately, uh, there are ways to protect that. You can uh, use insulation, you can use caging. And if you allow me for a second here to do a little bit of story time, according to a book in 2002 called Air Force One, not the novelization of the movie, but it is by this guy, Robert Doerr. He said that during the administration of President George H.W. Bush, there was a delay in delivering the new fleet, the current fleet that we have today of Air Force One, and the, the last minute delay was reported to be a requirement that came at the very last minute that the electrical veins and arteries of the Boeing 747-200B needed to be hardwired against EMP. And that was kind of interesting, you know, why would this be a last minute addition to the in-flight menu? Because we had known about EMP effects since the 1960s, but there's a reason why they had to do all this work, and it's a big deal because to protect uh, the airplane against EMP, you have to add a ton of weight to the plane, all of those things, and they can degrade flight and speed. Um, but it does not mean that if you were to have the plane be hit by the blast wave of a nuclear weapon, the wings would still rip off. You know, it's, but there are some yeah, things. That's that. I mean, that's like I. I almost felt that's what they were trying to imply in the movie. That like that shock wave that I imagine people saying. That's what I thought she meant by pulse. So it, there are things on Air Force One. It's there. There's some thermal and nuclear shielding, like radiation shielding, uh, that could be helpful. But it all depends. It's like having a fallout shelter. It's not great if your fallout shelter is ground zero. But if you're within certain parameters, you're in, you're in good shape. One thing that's kind of interesting is that the windows in Air Force One aren't the kind of windows you normally see on an airplane. They're actually more similar to the glass mesh wiring that you see in your microwave, huh. which is meant to protect you against radiation. Interesting. But here's a good question, since I occasionally fly with you on the weekends. Uh, is your Cessna hardened against EMP? Well, Tim, if you're wondering whether next time we go flying, we're going to go out looking for nuclear blasts. Um, no, the answer is no. Uh, no, it's basically a telephone booth with wings. It's not really hardened against anything. I always love my favorite thing about Gabe, the, his big uh, safety uh, recommendation is, uh, yeah, so if the plane goes underwater, just like make sure you go out the back of the plane and not towards the <laughs> propeller. Just make sure that you remember and be calm in that Away moment and go go to the back of the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i appreciate advice, that advice you hope to never have to use yeah well back back to the movie um we're, we're at altitude now the plane has taken off this is where things start to pick up a disgruntled secret service agent named gibbs he has no first name Just no gibbs. first name gibbs 
he uh, shoots other Secret Service agents in an area where there's a bunch of guns in a lockbox. He invites Ivan, uh, Gary Oldman's version of Ivan, uh, and a bunch of the other terrorists up to the front of the plane, gives them guns and bulletproof vests and, like, uh, smoke bombs. And what happens? The terrorists take control of the airplane. They take the president's family and staff hostage. But it seems like the president is able to get out, right? They send him to the bottom of the plane where they store all the, the baggage and the food and they get him into an escape pod in the cargo hold. And the escape pod is jettisoned. The parachute is deployed and terrorists think that they no longer have uh, him on board. Yeah, and the terrorists also capture something else or almost capture something else, right? That's very important. Right, at some point um, you see this military aide with a briefcase handcuffed to his wrist and uh, someone yells, The football! Uh, which is, you know, makes sense because earlier in the movie he's really wanting to watch Notre Dame football Right. Like watch a Notre Dame football game. So I'd, but the first time I saw this movie, I'm like, oh, does he mean like the VHS tape of the football <laughs> the game? game. <laughs> I need recording. something. I need something to watch in my uh, as my, <laughs> my my skate pod down. But no, he what he means by the football that's the nickname for the presidential emergency satchel, which is a communications device that the president uses to communicate with the national command authority to authorize a nuclear strike. It's not a a nuclear launch. Uh, device. It's not like you push a red button and all of a sudden kind of missiles go up in the air. It's like a fancy phone that you can okay. you can authorize a, a, a launch order. You tell some command authority that, hey, go ahead and send out those emergency action messages that are the thing you actually send to the people who turn the key or, or drop the bomb. And in, in real life, is it actually like chained to the people or chained to the military people? No, uh, I, it has a loop. They've got one of those. It looks like a kind of like a, a bicycle lock that has the, the loop. Okay. It's the one you can't really like easily cut with scissors. Yeah, yeah. They probably keep that on the wrist in case there's like a little bit of a hoopla uh, and there's a little scuffle that it won't fall off your wrist or that someone just can't grab it and, and run like someone stealing a, a rye bread of an old lady like in Seinfeld. <laughs> but it's not locked or anything because to use it, you can't just like steal the the satchel. You have to have some other stuff. You have to have... Um, what's called the biscuit. So that's a, like a little ca- plastic card that you crack open and it has some codes on them and it has essentially the size of a credit card. The president usually keeps it in their inside jacket pocket. And what it is, it has a bunch of codes, let's say like 10 codes and one of them is real and the other ones are all decoys. And that's the thing that you would do to author- to authenticate that you are the president. Why are they calling it the biscuit? You wouldn't keep a biscuit in your jacket. Or they should call it <laughs> like the, the handkerchief or something. Pass that up the chain, Tim. Yep. So you have to have the biscuit. You have to know which code is a real one and which one's a decoy. You have to know all of the launch procedures and how to use the football. You have to have to hope that no one at the Pentagon has remotely shut off that Pacific football, which we see later in the movie. And you have to be able to hide your Russian accent. Then at that point, maybe you could you can launch an attack. But the funny thing is, is that, yes, the president is always followed by someone from the military who has the football with them. But you don't have to use the football to launch a nuclear strike. I mean, literally, you can do it from the Pentagon, the Situation Room, or funny enough, Air Force One is also a mobile communication facility. So if they were to launch a strike on Air Force One, they wouldn't need to use the football. They would just use a telephone on Air Force One. Now, I'm worried we're getting a little bit away from the, the airplane podcast here. We're going to bring us back away from the... Anything from this scene that kind of <laughs> that, that, that grinds yeah. your, well, your landing gear? My landing gears? Well, th- so the escape pod, I think I just mentioned noting that this is not some Something that is on Air Force One in real life. If you if you Google this online, this is one of the most 
kind of Googled things about this movie. It's, <laughs> it's not a real thing. It actually didn't bother me, though, that it's... I thought it was kind of a creative taking liberty with the actual airplane. It was kind of a cool way to move the plot. It was a cool feature. And I think the director predicted that future Air Force One will have escape pods and and parachute ramps, uh, maybe a golden escape pod, but we'll, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, I just, I wish that this uh, show had an escape podcast so I can leave and see my family again at some point, but we'll see how this goes. No, you're, you're going to be in your basement for a while. Too. <laughs> We're going to do more of these. <laughs> oh, shoot. So, so Air Force One um, attempts an emergency landing, right, at, at Ramstein Air Force Base, and they're almost able to do it. Yeah, they got close. But it was a good, exciting scene. They almost did it. Yeah, no, it, I, I mean, especially the, the pilots, I mean, they get the airplane on the ground and the terrorists then break in and the pilots like refuse to take off again. They both get shot and killed. It's it's actually quite a jarring scene, I thought. I don't know what you thought about it. It was chilling. It was one yeah. of those scenes. It's the that and there's one other scene uh, in the movie, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but the, the people who get killed in this movie, it's it's darker than you would think for a movie that's about Air Force One being taken over. It's, it's a pretty hardcore action movie. You don't really get a lot these days anymore. That's why they brought Gary Oldman. They brought the big the big guns in for this one. Yeah. One of the terrorists knows how to fly a plane, and they get back in the air, and they head the plane. They make it go towards Kazakhstan. A group of F-15s are, are sent to escort Air Force One, and Ivan starts smoking on the plane. He knows that's not allowed, right? I guess when you, you know, when you hijack something. Thing. Maybe I'll start smoking here on the podcast. You know. <laughs> Terrorists, they, they get on the phone. They call Washington. Uh, they call the vice president, uh, Catherine Bennett, and they threaten that unless Ivan Raddick, the other Ivan, the evil rogue general, unless he's released from prison, they're going to start killing hostages every like 30 minutes, every hour. By the way, let me uh, brief aside. I thought Glenn Close was very good as the vice president. Oh, and, she was terrific. The, yeah, I, I, I was very happy with that. No, she she was great, and we mentioned earlier that she was like a last minute addition. I'm I'm glad. The vice president usually has some random things like regulating dog haircuts or some sort of strange, <laughs> you know. It, I used to work for Joe Biden. I'm aware. <laughs> there, you, there you go. That's worth the whole other conversation these days. But. Yeah, uh, but anyways, the it's interesting because the terrorists uh, think that Air, that the president is no longer on Air Force One, but we find out that the escape pod is empty. So everybody's confused. Why are the terrorists not, like, forcing the president's hand? No one knows exactly about, like, where is the president? Both sides don't really know uh, where the president is. Lots of people, like, kind of running around, reading papers, handing off folders to other people. Grabbing things off the fax machine. There you go. But uh, do you think this was a smart uh, move for the president? Uh, Because we learned that he did not get on the escape pod. Do you think this was a a good move for him? You know, they mentioned he's a a Medal of Honor winner. He's a pilot. He's he's really smart. But now he's he's put his country kind of back at risk again. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it works for the movie, but they probably rehearsed this kind of thing. And in a crisis situation like that, you would think instinct would take over and he would just kind of go straight into the escape pod and... You think he would realize like his value? Maybe it's because his family's on board yeah. that you know kind of just drove him to do something very different there. But yeah, probably not the smartest move. But whatever, he he felt confident about his odds to fight his way out. I suppose the vice president has to deal with this because the president is is a wall. So the vice president has to try to call the Russian president Petrov and see if he'll release Radic. But he's like, no, because that's awful. Because if the, if Radic is released, then he'll come after Petrov. 
and the and the Russian Federation will go back to the dark ages uh, of the Soviet Union. Things escalate uh, up up a notch. Uh, after those 30 minutes are up, the Ivan character played by Gary Oldman, he just straight up in cold blood kills the national security advisor and things get pretty crazy and it, it's hard to see where the movie's going to go next except you find out that President Marshall is able to find a cell phone somewhere in one of the bags down in the storage area in this very funny scene he says he puts himself through to, to the White House switchboard yeah. and eventually he's able to get in touch with the vice president and the uh, the other advisors which is a pretty fun scene and back to another military airplane scene here Gabe when you want to walk us through this one what happens yeah, next he has this plan that he's going to talk an F-15 that's one of the F-15s that's escorting Air Force One to firing on them because what will happen is the missile defense system in the Air Force One on Air Force One which is actually real would activate and the blast would kind of shake the airplane enough and that would give him a chance to kind of attack the terrorists his his moment of opportunity um there's this hilarious line where the the f-15 pilot's like okay boys give me some room i've just been ordered to fire an air force one it's just so (laughs) cheesy and like whatever um but uh yeah no it it um it it does happen uh i think it, it does go to plan the the missile uh, defense system works and there's the blast uh, i just thought some of this is kind of ridiculous like the airplane's maneuvering to avoid and the airplane will be doing these steep turns and you see the stuff like sliding off a table like mm-hmm. it's a ship and it's like no like <laughs> it, the g-forces go downward still like that's not how airplane turns work i just annoying but Hollywood magic, um, yeah. Well, the next time we go flying together, I'll take a glass of water and just put it on on the uh, the dashboard, and we'll see what happens. There's great videos online of guy. He's an aerobatics pilot, and he'll do a barrel roll, which I know you're a fan of. Uh, <laughs> and he he as he's doing the barrel roll, he pours a glass of water. So actually, as he's inverted upside down, the water's coming out of the pitcher into the glass. It's just like yeah, if you turn properly. You're always just have one G, so things shouldn't be sliding around. The other ridiculous thing, why do you think Korshinov, whatever, doesn't tell or say earlier, like, I don't want these airplanes following me? Doesn't he know, like, there's going to be trouble with F-15s just flying around with him? I, I think he just wants a, he wants an escort in case someone else decides to uh, to take over Air Force One. He's like, no, that's mine now. I recently had to run through this situation where I had to get uh, quickly, very quickly to the hospital for my child to be born. And I would have loved to have... Uh, you know, F-15s escort me on the way there, like a you know, police escort. It's a pomp and circumstance thing. It's just yes. fun. Congratulations, by the way. I will, Let's celebrate the birth of your child by having you locked in your basement for <laughs> the foreseeable future. I mean, it is it is a, it is a weird way to celebrate, but um, <laughs> you're, you got your own way of handling this. And uh, just like Ivan figures out uh, his own way of handling this problem is that someone must be down below, cause mischief. He doesn't know yet that it's the president. He thinks it's like a Secret Service agent. And he executes the deputy press secretary, the very one who was so nice to him at the beginning of the movie, taking him on the tour. And this seems to really uh, mess with the the president. What ends up happening, right, is that the president, he decides to find a way to cut some sort of wire to release fuel to force the plane to have to land. Uh, which yeah, is... he, yeah, he acts. He activates a fuel dump, which is a fairly common thing on big airplanes. And yeah, the, the, clearly he's going to force the terrorists to land. The, the terrorists are able to kind of go down below, rectify this problem. Uh, they, they 
somehow reset the system. But I just thought it was ridiculous because the president needs to be talked through this very intricate, almost like diffusing a bomb thing by you know special technicians. And the terrorists who have no real special knowledge of Air Force One system just do it like without any instruction. They're like, oh, there's the cut wire or whatever. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Um, so now that they're out of fuel, because they eventually solve it, but they're still low on fuel, not enough to get right. to Kazakhstan. Right. Um, they demand that they need uh, mid-air refueling. So I think Ivan pulls out like a pamphlet, like a, out of the press pamphlet and says, oh, it, mid-air refueling. So he's learning now all the capabilities of Air Force One. And he says, all right, I want some fuel in the air and let's get this going. And the president decides to take advantage of this and he sends a fax. And it's because he sends the fax because he's now hanging out with everybody else on the plane, all the civilians, including a very cool scene where the one of the, like the, I guess, the a, a secretary who decides... Uh, oh, they're monitoring communication, but not the fax machines. So they use the fax machine to send a message back to Air Force One that if you get the plane to 15,000 feet and 200 knots, that the hostages can parachute out of the back of the plane, which is it's pretty cool. The fax machine was actually a really big innovation on Air Force One. It sounds silly in 2020 to talk about fax machines. So here's a here's a cool article I found from Knight Ritter Newswire in 1989. The Air Force, always on the cutting edge of technology this is not sarcasm (laughs) is getting its own custom-made fax machine for more than 421,000 each oh my god that per fax machine yeah 421,000 that's almost a half a million dollars per fax machine it's wild including spare parts though so it all works out the article says while taxpayers can pick up a fax machine you know which transmits copies of documents over telephone lines for less than a thousand dollars these devices aren't up to the sand dust rain salt fog fungus and nuclear survivability standards that the air force requires the government is acquiring a state-of-the-art facsimile machine that can send and receive high-resolution imagery data in any place at any time around the world says colonel thomas Hollycross, director of imagery systems for the air force now when the battlefield commander sends time-sensitive data uh, targeting photographs to the wing level, the ANUCX-4 can transmit these images in near real time in any climate. Our fax machines will reproduce an image with practically no loss of detail, says Jack Catalongo uh, from the U.S. Air Force. I was looking at a picture of a squirrel it produced this morning. And if you want to sit there long enough, you can count the hairs on the squirrel. It puts together a pretty formidable picture. And if there's another fax machine that does what this one does, we don't know about it. Why is Air Force One getting pictures of squirrels on the half a million dollar fax machine? Like what? Are they just sending memes around on this thing? You know, it's a it's it's a nutty idea. The squirrels are the squirrel images are just the what 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 we need. But anyways, I thought it's kind of funny. But what do you think about the the idea? Does this make does this plot make sense? Like fifteen thousand feet, two hundred knots. Yeah. It all makes sense. We'll talk about it later, but yeah, and I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in parachuting, but you know, the the air is breathable enough at fifteen thousand feet. Two hundred knots is, I think, reasonably slow. Once again, I'm not a parachute expert. There's some other issues with this scene, but um, now my my biggest thing was that um, you know, so the way this scene unfolds is the president and all the people who are in the hostage area with him, they're able to escape to the back of the airplane where this door is that that allows them to parachute out. In the meantime, this is going on while they're trying to refuel the airplane. 
through this KC-10 tanker that has a refueling boom that connects to the nose of Air Force One. When the door opens to let people out of the back for parachuting and the cockpit, the terrorists are notified of it. The terrorists finally make their way down to the back there and are able to force this. There's kind of a a pressure lock or airlock or something uh, that releases cabin pressure out into the uh, atmosphere. And the implication is that this kind of destabilizes the airplane and actually triggers uh, the fuel boom to get dislodged and kind of scrape against the nose of Air Force One, which sparks a fire, which causes the air, the KC-10 tanker to blow up. I mean, that's just kind of ridiculous. I, I mean, the, the, the decompression wouldn't like cause that destabilization. And there'd be a fuel boom operator who was watching everything. And if anything was a problem, they'd just pull it back. And that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, it's probably just an excuse for one more explosion. I, yes, I think so. That, that seemed to be the rule of these movies from the late 90s. One more explosion. <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, one more explosion, um, but at least we'll get some explosive dialogue scenes because we finally get the president face-to-face with Gary Oldman. Yep. Uh, They get some FaceTime together, and he actually convinces the president to give the order to free Raddick by threatening to kill the president's daughter. And this was this was dark too. I mean this is probably what you were referring to before. This was like really messed up that he's gonna like kill this like thirteen year old girl or something like that. Yeah, and it, we get some dramatic scenes uh, with the, a lot of Russian um, uh, traditional uh, like operatic music playing when Ivan is so excited he gets his suit back on and he's walking out. People are cheering for him. It sounds like he's going to get on this helicopter. Uh, it's, it seems like they, they go pretty quick about it, and, and the president... And it, it, it's great. Everything looks pretty terrific, uh, except that... The whole time, Marshall, who has his hands tied behind his back, is executing the classic movie trope of <laughs> cutting yourself free with a piece of glass while the terrorists are looking the other way. And we get into a situation where the someone goes to shoot the president, the chief of staff uh, takes a bullet for him. In slow motion, of course. Yeah, of course. Ivan Radek gets shot while he's entering the helicopter because they got, they got a message out that says, hey, we got the plane back. There's a quick shootout, so now Ivan's dead so we don't have to worry about that uh, issue anymore. Um, More nuclear threat. That's great. Right? That makes, that makes you happy. Yeah. They'll, they'll sign in the, in the epilogue. They'll talk about the Lipset Protocol, I'm sure. <laughs> there's, a, there's a quick fight. Uh, there's all these kind of back and forth, a little bit of a chase. And then we get this great scene. We get the kind of the big movie moment. And why don't you, yeah. since you've taken over the podcast, why don't you take take this over well, so here? So this is in the back of the airplane where the people were parachuting out. The the fight kind of leads them to there. And it's, and it's Marshall and Korshinov who are fighting and Marshall is able to wrap this parachute cord around his neck and kick the parachute out and it basically before he does it he says get off my plane and then kicks him (laughs) off and the parachute kind of strangles him to death and it's just great get off my plane Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. President Marshall tries to uh, re- recall his his youth as a pilot and tries to land the plane. He tries to get some, uh, instructions right from the White House on how to fly Air Force One. Doesn't work, right? Uh, he's got yeah. some sort of problems. Well, it's funny because Harrison Ford is a real life pilot, which is kind of funny. Like watching this movie and seeing him like be like, "Oh, how do I do this?" It's just kind of well, strange. doesn't doesn't he crash a lot in real life? So, okay, he had one crash. He also accidentally landed on a taxiway 
in LA. But he did self-report. He called and reported himself. But yeah, um, he's had some incidents, but you know, who hasn't? Uh, yeah, I guess he used to fly helicopters, so it's not the same, right? Well, that's right. So the I think the character in the movie was supposed to be a, um, uh, he was a pilot for the Marines, I guess, helicopter pilot for the Marines. But still, I mean, there's um, there's this element of, I'm not a helicopter pilot, but I, I'm familiar with some of this stuff. And there's enough of common theory and language and instrumentation and things that some of the lines there about him, like not knowing what to do are a little bit silly for somebody who flew helicopters for quite some time but i you know we'll we'll look over that it's all a moot point because all of a sudden some migs uh from i guess ivan raddick's army come into into play and they go to shoot down air force one and these f-15s come to the rescue but air force one she's she's badly damaged right she loses an engine um wait it looks like everything is about to to kind of fall apart here yeah there's just i don't know there was some weird stuff here like one of the things on the map they're showing like everything moving and there's like this basically the f-15s cover the distance of almost an entire country within like two minutes hmm. and i just it didn't it didn't work for me i was watching i was like uh they they can go fast but not that fast they need to put on their their super secret afterburners yeah i guess so uh, warp speed <laughs> but you know anyways so they they can't land anymore so they decide uh, this new plan what they're gonna do is they're gonna take a c-130 hercules have it kind of fly below air force one and then they connect the two with a zip line and then people are able to kind of zip line down to the hercules plane but then that's at that point where gibbs reveals himself don't really know i guess he would have figured he would have been noticed eventually yeah, i was kind of thinking that because there are parts of the movie where he like makes some choices to like stay on the plane with the president and everything and it's just weird that you know after they've evacuated all the passengers through the zip line thing because there are no more parachutes left and it's like him and the president and, like one other guy he's like now i'll reveal myself and like take save myself and it's kind of like how is he going to then justify that when he gets across the zip line onto the c-130 he's like oh yeah i let the president die there wouldn't somebody like look into all this i don't know yeah it's it's confusing but you know what whatever the president is able to get away and gibbs gets to go down with the uh the ship in in that sense right and we have no idea why gibbs was disgruntled but that's never described in this movie no it's yeah it's probably like a a, a pay raise he was pass for a promotion uh he's a uh, he hates notre dame football uh it's any number of different things that it could be right he couldn't stand those notre dame games being on first <laughs> one well whatever it is uh he's a jerk and they have this great line where uh the c-130 hercules is now air, air force one is down i repeat air force one is down liberty 2-4 do you have the president Stand by. liberty 2-4 is changing call signs Liberty 2-4 is now Air Force One! Mr. President! Welcome aboard, sir! I think some people, this seems to be more common knowledge now than it used to be, but I think the, the story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but when President Eisenhower was flying on, on his executive aircraft, this was before Air Force One, it was called Columbine 2, it, apparently that airplane had a similar call sign to a commercial flight, hmm. and the planes kind of got too close, there was not enough space between them, so to avoid that in the future, the Air Force One designation was created for whatever airplane the president happened to be on at the time. The actual airplanes are military variants of the Boeing 747, 
very famous jumbo jet civilian airplane. It's called the VC twenty five. But but no, Air, that's where that's where we get Air Force One from. Cool. So that's the movie. There's no more nuke stuff in here, so uh, I've got nothing else to talk about. I'm sure you have, might have some things. Yeah, we got we got some. We're not done here. We we have some uh, major some major issues to talk through, and we'll go in in order of increasing egregiousness. And if there's anything I've learned from uh, <laughs> the, the host of a former podcast, it, it never hurts to get too super critical. So let's get into it here. Give it to me plain and simple. So, okay, first thing, let's talk a little bit about the actual airplane and the airplane we saw in the movie. Um, and I, I think they actually did an okay job, uh, given the... You know, given some of the constraints, there's very little public information about Air Force One. But first, maybe a little bit of history. So we talked a little bit about kind of where the whole idea of Air Force One came from, that President Eisenhower's airplane. But the first airplane we see that looks like an Air Force One, they were actually Boeing 707 airplanes. And these original ones are designated SAM for Special Air Mission 26,000 and 27,000. You probably have seen them. The most famous uh, photo is from uh, shortly after... After JFK's assassination, Lyndon B. Johnson is on board one of these airplanes actually taking the oath of office. Uh, and that, I think, is one of those iconic moments that kind of solidifies Air Force One as this, this kind of special thing. Hmm. When we got into the Reagan administration, the, these older 707s, they were starting to, to show their, their years a little bit. And there was an order for what we know as the Air Force One today. These are, are heavily modified 747-200 aircraft, which uh, was the first update of the, the classic 747 design that entered service in 1971. These, uh, these were designated the next two kind of numbers, SAM 28,000 and SAM 29,000. So these actually, interestingly enough, they, they fly together in pairs. There's one that's a decoy hmm. um, so that in case there's ever some kind of attack or something like that. Just all the time, whenever wherever they go to places, there's always that's, two? That's Yeah, that's my understanding that that's how they do it. If you look around, um, for example, the presidential helicopters, you'll see three of them flying together. Uh, Marine One, they always do that to avoid the risk of, or minimize the risk of an attack. And they're based here close to us at Andrews Air Force Base, which I think you go to for air shows from time to time. Yeah, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I I actually saw one of the airplanes once in flight. I was playing golf at West Potomac Park and looked up and saw. It. I don't <laughs> think the president was on board because there was only it was flying alone. But uh, yeah, it was kind of cool actually. What do they do to make this uh, special? So. It's a 747-200. It's not the kind of 747 that we would go on for a commercial aircraft. They they must do something to it to make it a little bit fancier. Yeah, it's not it's not like, you know, you're getting squished into an economy seat in the back. It definitely has that uh, almost like a business jet feel um, inside. Uh, it only has capacity for about 70 people compared to a typical 747-200 that held about 350. So so about one-fifth of the people. It has some special stuff, uh, two full galleys, and these are you know where they can actually cook meals and stuff. Uh, there's a medical suite with an onboard doctor, uh, gym, office, conference rooms, that kind of stuff. I think You've probably seen photos. I mean, you always see from time to time on the news and stuff, you see the office space and the conference rooms and all that, you know? Yeah, I never see the escape pod, but I guess that's right. You mentioned it's not it's not in there. They probably wouldn't show that. No, they keep that one silent. Keep that one hidden. Well, where does uh, where does POTUS hang out? His suite is up front at, at the front of the airplane. There's kind of two beds. Then behind that are kind of offices. And then as you go further back, there's quarters for uh, you know members of the cabinet. And then all the way in the back, because we hate the media now, uh, that's where the press uh, gets to gets to sit. It also has some other neat features. It has retractable staircases, so 
they can kind of they don't need to rely on a, a stair truck um, for for all the Arrested Development fans out there. Yeah, they don't have to pull the uh, emergency inflatable thing every single time. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're like, oh, I want to leave, but yeah, it's kind of fun though. He gets to slide down, right? <laughs> It has some special communications equipment. The The upper deck is believed to be a communication center in the event of an attack. Yeah, I heard it's uh, not as cool, though, as the the E-4 Advanced Airborne Command Post, uh, the national, otherwise known as the National Airborne Operations Center. This is a, an aircraft that we talked a lot about on the Sum of All Fears episode. It's also sometimes described in media as the doomsday plane, the plane that would, uh, if case the Pentagon and um, Omaha Strategic Command, all these different places were uh, knocked out in the first strike of a nuclear attack, you could use this to relay those special emergency the action messages to bombers to submarines to the silo commanders anyways it's, it's still roughly equivalent we talked you know, about in the movie when one of those f-15s uh, gets the order to fire on air force one and we see all the cool stuff that kind of takes place after that so this is this is some of the stuff that's in there yeah the, the those countermeasures those uh, anti-missile systems it, it's public that that there is a countermeasure system uh one source that i found mentioned is the alq 204 batador infrared countermeasure system uh if we want to be technical about it um (laughs) and then you know you had mentioned some of the protections from the from the nuclear uh emp before but uh, in addition to that there's also armoring uh armored windows so uh, i think those are bulletproof uh bulletproof windows from what i was able to gather well we have all the all the scenes in the movie they're just firing guns left and right it's, and everyone's like oh people that watch this movie complain about it but it seemed like it'd be fine well okay but this no? is the thing i mean if it's just the windows to to actually armor the entire airplane the skin would be need to be so thick that would render the airplane like so ridiculously heavy that it would not be able to fly like a normal 747 at all. So but it can survive the pulse, the, <laughs> the pulse of a nuclear attack. You really do have your finger on it, Tim. Yeah, it's that was a little bit ridiculous. I mean, that, that thing would have looked like Swiss cheese, and it would have decompressed way before the whole parachute thing happened. Sure, you described all these cool things, but did you, when you saw Air Force One in the movie for the first time, did you see anything? That was like, oh, this is a, uh, everything looks great. Check. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, the first glance, it kind of looks, it looks the par, but when you start to dig in, so this actually looked to be, instead of a 747-200 variant, it looked to be a 747-100, which is the original one. You can tell right away, any airplane person is going to know this from the engines, which are clearly uh, the Pratt & Whitney JT-90 engines instead of... Obviously instead of the GECF6s that the actual airplane has. So, th- I mean, that's kind of glaring. Honestly, if, if I were to show you, Tim, like pictures of the engine side by side, you, you, you wouldn't be able to unsee it. I think the actual airplane they got um, was an old Kalita Air, which is a cargo charter, uh, 747. The, the registry was N, uh, as in November, 703 Charlie Kilo, which you can kind of look up online. And it looks like they like completely repainted it to have the authentic Air Force One painting, mm-hmm. but they didn't make some of the other modifications. So there's no hump on the nose, which is uh, in that refueling scene. That's actually where the refueling boom goes into in real life. Uh, so that's a, a very conspicuous uh, thing that was missing. It was probably very difficult. It would have been very difficult for them to do it because it would have required major engineering work to the airplane they'd have to get new certifications so i think if they had made that movie today they probably would have added it in in cgi but at the time probably wouldn't have looked as good Hmm. um 
but also there's just a lot of if you look at the real air force one there's a lot of these different radio antennae uh i think to to satisfy the the communications equipment there there there's some of that stuff and you don't really see that on the airplane that was used in the movie i mean what do you think i mean there was some cgi in there at the end did you think that 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 airplane would have looked okay if they had done it in cgi instead of you know but buying or renting this this real airplane flying around it's hard because with cgi you can make some things look great like in independence day the ships the alien ships look terrific right. but the things that sometimes don't look great are the 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 military planes because we know what those are supposed to look like sure uh it made if you see a, you, you throw a hump on the front nose of a of a 747 100 you may be like i don't know that just that doesn't seem exactly the way that i've seen it before yeah. But if, but if you were to tell me, you know, you could put a bunch of weird stuff on an alien ship, and I'd be like, yeah, that looks great, because you don't necessarily know. I, I don't know. It's it to me. I never had any sort of complaint about the plane. Um, the the soundtrack for this movie is very good. Uh, it kind of uh, I think it's I'm pretty sure it's by Jerry Goldsmith, the same guy that did like Rudy and a bunch of other okay. stuff. Uh, so that makes the the pomp and circumstance of seeing Air Force One for the first time pretty great. Um, but I also thought the interiors were um were good as well. I you know from a, a layperson's perspective, I mean, what did you think of the kind of seeing the outside and seeing the inside? Were you were you buying it? Were you buying that this was the real thing? Well, the thing that I compared it to is how does it look from uh, my understanding of the West Wing TV show? Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Because I've seen I've seen a lot more of that uh, than I have sure. anything else, and that looked very similar to me to kind of the layout of that. And also, you know, props to the director, um, to Wolfgang here, is that you really get a sense of the plane and its layout, which is what you really need in a good action sequence. You know, like Die Hard, we know Nakatomi Tower, we know where everything is, uh, and we can then follow a really exciting uh, chase. The same thing with this, we know where the compartments are. We know how to, where everybody is like situated at any given moment. Uh, they do a really good job of laying that out. So which uh, helps to be a good foundation for the, this exciting scene. So we see a little bit later on. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think the, the, the story I read was that the uh, crew got a tour of air force one and it was difficult to get, they were originally rejected, but I think Harrison Ford might've actually called in a favor <laughs> The White House, um, and I guess the the press the deputy press secretary's character is based on the woman in real life who gave the tour, oh. which was really tough for the film crew when the, or from the the producer and director when they had to kill her off. It was like kind of weird. It was a Dee Dee Myers. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I don't think, I don't oh know. man. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's not like Ritz Carlton luxury. It is kind of like the Holiday Inn version. Well, maybe the new plane because we're currently going through another in a lot of retrofitting and modernization in the world right now. Um, the entirety of the U.S. nuclear. Sorry, I'm jumping back in here talking about new stuff. Uh, but the entirety of the nuclear weapon arsenal, the United States, the bombers, the submarines, the the, the land based missiles, we're all doing a huge because we can afford it, I guess. Not really, but we're just redoing everything. There's going to be the Minuteman three uh, new version of that. There's going to be a new fleet of submarines. There's going to be new heavy bombers which i think they're going to call uh the raider is the name of the new bomber so they're doing all these new you know modernization efforts i think also the same thing is happening right with air force one yeah no there is uh there are plans to replace the current bc-25 with i think it's going to be bc-25b the designation it's basically going to be the latest version of the um 747 uh 747-8 which is not not very popular airplane uh didn't really sell that well but interestingly enough 
the two airplanes that they've identified to be the next Air Force One were supposed to be uh, delivered to a Russian airline that it went out of business. So <laughs> um, fun connection there. Now that th- there's all kinds of stuff going on, it seems like there's crazy budget overruns and the program was criticized due to cost estimated to exceed uh, $4 billion. And um, it's not really clear if slash when that's going to happen. I know President Trump decided that there was going to be a new paint scheme, more red, white, and blue rather than the kind of blue and gold. And new uh, new, new gold inside the the interior. So we'll, we'll get the, the Hilton level of uh, Steph's just chairs and things. Yeah, maybe. Everything sounds great. You know, the interior looks good. The outside of the well, plane looks good. But what I about gotta, what about I, the most front? interior portion the cockpit yeah the cockpit really there were two things about this the inside that really bothered me and one was the cockpit and let me talk about this i mean right when they get get into the cockpit it looks great it looks fancy there's all these kind of big screens and everything's looks futuristic and modern but they really got this wrong and if you go online to look at some pictures there's no for example presidential seal on the back of the seats which is in real life and the instrument panel is all glass screens but the real air force one actually has those Hmm. old-fashioned analog uh, steam gauge type dials is there a reason for that the 747 200 is an older airplane and those those instruments work and that's what came with the airplane so you don't really need the uh, the glass cockpit to be able to fly the airplane. Um, it does help with situational awareness and and pilot workload and things like that. But pilots who fly Air Force One are very uh, highly trained. There's a full crew. They're getting plenty of rest, so that kind of stuff probably isn't necessary. I mean, they. I'm assuming they did it to make the actual thing more high tech. In fact, people may not have believed it if they had what the cockpit actually looked like. They would have thought it was fake. But actually, that is what it looks like. So I mean, the same thing can be said for the the U.S. nuclear arsenal. To be honest, the submarines are pretty advanced. But uh, if you go inside of a launch silo, the the, okay. the the things you normally would see. I mean, for the longest time, this is just soon going to be no longer the case. But all of the the launch codes and other uh, launch orders and the specifications and things were stored on old floppy disks, literally the okay. kind that you could flop around instead of being everything digital because it worked. It was something that was like failure proof, EMP proof, hacking proof. Uh, you would put all this stuff into the system and it would everything would just kind of work really well. And the same thing that all of our kind of like B-52 bombers, those are old. Those are from like the Vietnam War era yeah. uh, of planes. And those are just, they're going to start to create new versions of everything now. But it's just that sense of, well, if things are working, uh, let's keep them simple because there's so many other things that can go wrong when you add new levels of, of complexity to it. Yeah. So I mentioned there was one other thing about the interior that really bothered me. And this was the cargo deck space below. And hmm. I get why they had this long cavernous space, have these action scenes where they're running all around. But if you go in a real airplane, there's actually not a whole lot of space down there. And the worst thing about this is the 747 actually has a center fuel tank. So it's not just one long cargo space. It's actually two different spaces that are blocked off physically from each other. So mm. there's no way that they'd be able to be running back and forth. Um, I thought that was a little uh, a little unnerving. But frankly, a lot of airplane movies get this wrong. There seems to be this misconception that there's this like incredible space that the airlines have decided they're not going to use in the bottom of their airplanes. And 
That's just not the way it is. I saw snakes on a plane. Right. The same exactly. thing. No, exactly. we, we we talked about this when we covered Hunt for Red October. Uh, there's okay. a, there's a famous scene of the gun shootout inside the sub, the Russian submarine where they're kind of shooting and dodging, ducking behind the missiles and everything. Tom Clancy did not know this because it was classified at the time, but it was a double hull for those okay. uh, those large uh, submarines. So all okay. of all of the actual missiles were you could not see them; they were walled off. Because of the fact that it had this like really thick double hull, um, so you couldn't have this shootout because th- that space didn't exist. Because on a submarine like an airplane, space is uh, valuable, and you want to not have all of it being wasted. Yeah, that's a rare, a rare Tom Clancy uh, gaff in something like that. So interesting. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have known at that time. Yeah. All right, he gets a pass. Yeah. All right, so so I think that's that was kind of the first thing where I'm, I'm getting a little on edge. My, my antennae are up. Uh, what gets me even worse though, is the zip line rescue. Um, and I don't know about you, Tim, but I don't mind it when movie scenes are fantastic and, you know, amazing, but they still have to obey the laws of physics, right? Yeah. Uh, so does this, uh, just give you a little bit of turbulence. Just, just a little bit, a little, yeah, a little light chop. So let me ask you, the first thing I want to talk about, have you ever, I'm going to ask you a question that probably nobody's ever asked you before. Have you ever watched somebody really open the door of a commercial airplane? No, I haven't. So next time you're, you're flying back home to LA, watch the flight attendant, you know, once you land, open the door. You'll notice that most of the doors, they actually pull them back toward them first and then kind of swivel them out. Hmm. And there's actually a reason for this. It's because the cabin is pressurized at high altitude. There's a much lower air pressure outside. And that pressure differential actually pushes the door against the frame of the airplane and kind of secures it in place. So it, it would actually be impossible for a normal human to kind of pull against that differential force. You'd have to depressurize the cabin? Exactly. It's like it's like opening the car door after your car goes underwater kind of thing. That's Got the it. same principle. Because uh, you'd be pulling against the pressure, against the high pressure. Now, the problem here is the agent for the zipline rescue scene, he just kind of, like, pushes his button and the door just, like, pops out, Boop. like, open. Yeah, like, no problem whatsoever. And I know they're at a lower altitude, uh, 10,000 feet, but the problem is aerodynamic pressure. So on the 747, the door actually, you need to kind of push it into the airstream. It opens forward. And this is further designed to keep the door secured in place during flight. Um, so there's really no way just to start the scene off where they mm-hmm. connect the zip line to, to one of the doors on the side. There's no way they could have opened that door even. Uh, it just wouldn't have worked. So they'd have to find another way in. And I just think it's funny, you know, they kind of pop that door out and it goes flying back. I mean, did you think like, well, what if it hits like the wing or something? I mean, you know, I guess when you're faced with all the bad stuff that was about to happen, it's just, what are you going to do? You know, there's not enough parachutes. Uh, they got to get, they got to get going. Uh, and if it hits the wing, then okay. It's just a risk you take. That's yeah. how you go. Hmm. Well, what about the parachute scene? Cause that, that's, that makes sense to me. You have a parachute, you have a, uh, it is, I guess does the actual air force one have a door that can go back in the, on the plane to like load it up. Yeah, I mean, once again, um, there are some doors uh, to the bottom of the airplane, but as far as I could tell, nothing in the back that would let somebody kind of jump out the back. Um, Hmm. All this kind of stuff requires a lot of structural modification to do like non-standard things, and that just adds weight, and it reduces the performance of the airplane, so they'd really be limiting that kind of stuff. Um, So I'd be surprised. 
Here's a, here's a base level question for you. Why doesn't Boeing just invent a new airplane that's not a modification off of an existing plane that we we're trying to sell to the Russians? What, why don't they just say, all right, you want a plane? We'll get you a plane. And they build one from the ground up and not try to modify another plane. What If it's already going to go cost overrun, why don't we just make something fancy that's just, it's not a 747-100. It's just, it's Air Force One, dude. It's Air Force One, the new one. Why don't they do that? No, it's a great it's a great question because you're probably wondering for four trillion, yeah, why not start from scratch? I think the problem is the four trillion, a lot of that is not from the airplane itself. A lot of that is from all the special equipment. I mean, you probably know more about that than me in terms of the all the secret stuff, the communication stuff. Uh, we talked about the electromagnetic shielding that would be required, the bulletproof windows, and all this stuff is so bespoke and things for aviation are very expensive because everything needs to be FAA certified. And that process is very expensive when you're just testing things for one use. And then to design a new airplane from scratch, that would be an incredibly expensive undertaking. So um, it's not mm. like you could just take that for, you know, four uh, billion dollars and put it toward um, a new airplane. You'd, you'd have to probably double or even triple that to get a new airplane from scratch. Hmm. I figure one of these days a president's going to want their own plane. Maybe by that point it'll be like uh, the presidential teleportation pad or something. Yeah, I can't wait for that. The president just comes to your house for dinner, like, no problem. <laughs> uh, summon, the, summon the president. Summon POTUS. <laughs> It keeps yeah keeps you close to your constituency. Oh, other than that, is everything else about that parachute scene makes sense? Other than the fact that they don't actually have something to jump out of. Well, okay, so two things. I mean, the first one comes back to cabin pressure, which a lot of these a lot of airplane movies just don't get this right. You know, you'll see people being sucked out of airplanes, and the the strange thing about this was an airplane is actually a giant pressure vessel. Uh, with wings attached to it, basically. So you're in this long cylinder that has a cap on each end, and it gets pressurized to usually the equivalent of 8,000 feet when you're you know, at, at altitude. Anything outside of this area is not pressurized. This includes like the really the back and the, the front part of the, uh, the nose cone where there's like uh, some radar equipment. But this compartment that they're in actually seems to be within that pressure vessel mm -hmm. so when they open this door to uh expose themselves to the atmosphere that should in theory depressurize the entire airplane because it's within the confines of that you know that that back the front and the back pressure bulkhead i, I looked at the scene again to, to double check i guess it's possible they had some in this fictional version they had some special they had some sort of special thing built around it where there would be you'd go through some sort of pressure bulkhead and then it would equalize pressure with the outside so it would kind of be uh disconnected from the rest of the airplane in some way but i think that would be really really unlikely so hmm. i just i just wasn't buying that the other thing too about the stuff getting sucked out when they open when they go through that airlock kind of door i mean they're at fifteen thousand feet the air here is thin but it's still breathable and the airplane would actually be pressurized to a much lower cabin altitude, so there wouldn't be that crazy pressure differential. Hmm. I, I don't think the stuff would get sucked out dramatically, even if somehow the airplane was designed in a way that this little area was separated from the rest of the pressure vessel and 
and uh, there was this whole equalization thing that you could do. Hmm. Well, what about the people, ignoring all of that stuff, the people who were able to jump out with their parachute? Uh, does this all seem pretty reasonable? We covered a movie on this, on the Now Dead podcast, the Super Critical podcast, uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, where they this, one of the best scenes in that movie is them doing a high-altitude jump. It's a big deal because they have all kinds of special masks on, and like, they're basically wearing a pressurized suit to do this jump. Can people actually survive jumping out like this without any sort of special gear other than uh, just some regular parachute? The great thing about it is we actually have a case of this. We have multiple cases, but the most famous was 1971. Uh, you may have heard of D.B. Cooper, um, who hijacked a Northwest Orient 727, um, basically uh, let all the, the hostages off the airplane, gave the pilots very specific instructions to fly at a slow airspeed of about 100 knots, which the 727 was a very uniquely capable aircraft to be able to fly at low speed hmm. uh, compared to other commercial airliners. It had a lot of special high lift devices on the wing. Um, so 100 knots at 10,000 feet. So compare that to the movie, which was 200 knots, 15,000 feet. He ordered the cabin to be unpressurized so that when he opened the door, it wouldn't cause yeah, bursts of air coming out. And uh, he did jump out of the back of the airplane somewhere over Oregon. Do you know, I mean, you probably read a little bit about D.B. Cooper and, and the Yeah, the this, is, this is when we used to negotiate with terrorists before President Harrison Ford changed <laughs> changed all the rules. Uh, no, I, I remember this story. It was a, it's a wild one. Um, I, I do remember, too, that they never, they found some of the money, but they never found him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So... I think there's a question about whether he survived or not, but there were a number of other copycat incidents who jumped out of 727 aircraft or, or DC-9 aircraft, which also had, uh, all of these aircraft would have a staircase that lowered out of the back because of the way the, um, the empennage was designed and the equipment back there. And um, actually, uh, some of those people did survive. Uh, but all of them got apprehended on the ground, which kind of sucks that you like <laughs> go through this whole thing and then you just get arrested. So Well, the best scene of any of this stuff in any movie ever is Point Break. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Point Break? With, no, uh, I haven't. With, uh, oh, you got to see this with Patrick Swayze and okay. uh, Keanu Reeves and everything. There's a number of really cool, let's just call them really cool chase scenes with parachutes. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. I'm going to check it out. No, since we're coronavirus lockdown, I can watch infinite movies now. So I'll add it to <laughs> Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the last thing that I see here in your notes. Probably a scene you don't want to sit down and watch again and again and again. Uh, the aborted Ramstein airport landing scene. How do yeah. You, how, do, how do you feel about this one? <laughs> Thank, thanks, Tim. Uh, so if this one, if the other one grind my landing gears, these uh, take my landing gears, set them on fire and throw them out of a... a 60-story building, basically. Well, do you remember, um, it may have been when you were in college, uh, there was the JetBlue flight? That yeah, with the landing gear, the for, the the, um, the front landing gear, the, the tire got rotated 90 degrees, and they landed, and it was a thing, yeah. I remember watching that uh, at a bar, like at a pizza place, but we were sitting, we, we had to go home. We had to study for finals the next day or something, some sort of test, but we're like, we can't not watch this. <laughs> it was very exciting. Uh, I was uh, I had interned at JetBlue the summer before actually, and I remember Ooh. calling calling people that I used to work with as as we were watching the crisis unfold live. But it was the landing itself was very undramatic. It was yeah, uh, paled in comparison to the the Hudson landing, the uh, Sully's famous landing on the Hudson. Well, could could Sully have done a better job landing this uh, airplane at Ramstein? Um, 
Oh my god! Not even Sully could have saved this one. Uh, the, so this was this was bad, and and really rises to a level of I would say comedic silliness. Uh, for any knows anything about flying and, and airplanes, I mean, let's talk about landing first, okay? And we we've probably talked about this when we've flown. I I kind of tell you, okay, Tim, it's been nice talking to you, but be quiet now. We got to land the airplane. It's a critical time in the flight, right? It requires a lot of technique and concentration. You're like Tim, stop talking to me about that random 1972 Cold War nuke movie. <laughs> Tim, Tim, for the last time, we're not shielded against EMP. <laughs> So it's a really critical phase of flight, requires a lot of attention, and yet this is exactly the time that the terrorists cause an explosion to break into the cockpit, kill the flight crew, pull their bodies out, get back into the seats, take control of the airplane, and somehow manage to get off the ground. I mean, just off the bat, like, ridiculous. Hmm. From the start, when they're landing the plane, they have, like, vehicles parked on the runway, I know this is for dramatic effect. That's ridiculous. They would never do that. The runway is a critical area. You would never land an airplane on a runway that had vehicles on it unless it was like a really bad emergency. Mm-hmm. The pilot kind of in this scene, so the pilots get the airplane um, uh, into the, the phase of flight that's kind of called the landing roll. And this is after the wheels have touched. They, they've derotated. So um, the airplane goes from being at an angle to being kind of flat on the ground, all wheels on. Uh, anytime a, a pilot will land, there are some immediate steps that you want to do to slow the airplane down because you want to get to a full stop as quickly as possible. First is by applying the brakes, uh, which you do by pushing on the tops of the rudder. Um, that's where the brakes are. You activate the spoilers. There's a handle next to the, the throttle levers by the pilot's hand. You actually see, I think it's the first officer that gets shot, but before he does, did you see him like pull that lever kind of before he gets shot? Yeah. Um, so that's that. So that that reduces a lot of the uh, lift on the wing or potential lift on the wing and, and causes braking action. And then activating reverse thrust on the engines, which are like little mini handles on top of the throttle. You pull back and it doesn't really run the engines in reverse, but it just redirects air from the fans to the opposite of the direction the airplane's flying. But all this does is the airplane starts to lose speed very quickly. Basically within you know 10 or 15 seconds, you've lost a lot of your flying speed. Yet in this scene, somehow the airplane through this, I don't know, what would you say? It was like a minute or two of them. Yeah, it was a long runway. Well, it's it was the long runway, and then they like careen over on the taxiway. The airplane is doing all these crazy maneuvering on the ground, and meanwhile, it's keeping up its speed. Airplanes just don't work this way. I mean, they would have lost their speed, and if they tried to make those abrupt turns, they just would have crashed, right? Maybe, uh, maybe it's like the the movie Speed, where the terrorists also put a bomb on the airplane that if they drop below a certain number of knots the plane would explode. They should just combine all the 90s action movies into one, like, Air Force One that can't go below a certain speed, but it's on an asteroid, and there's a tornado coming, and aliens also. Oh, yeah, and the only one that can save us is Bruce Willis hanging out inside of the uh, the overhead uh, cargo area. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. In the storage area. Um, so, so... I mean, once they go off the runway, too, even if somehow the airplane can maneuver, they would have hit lights, taxi lights. They would have popped tires. They actually hit trees at some point with the wing, which does no damage to the wing whatsoever. It just kind of sends some leaves in the air, which is totally ridiculous. Wings are... Airplane structure is actually quite fragile. There's Airplanes are designed to be as light as they possibly can. There's not a lot of structure there. They're not designed to hit stuff. I mean, you hit some tree branches, that's going to cause 
big problems for you. Well, I remember you took uh, us to a couple of us to go to a movie uh, that was called uh, Charlie Victor Romeo. Yes. And uh, it was it's great. It's a mo- really intense movie. It's basically reenactments of famous uh, like black box uh, audio of plane crashes. And it, the whole thing is done very calmly until things get a little bit crazy. And it's all essentially it looks like a theater production. So many of those crashes where plane wasn't able to get the speed that it needed and it crashed into uh, some trees. While it was landing, it was fine, but then it clipped a tree and it spun out of control and crashed. Almost a third or to half of the accidents were because of clipping trees. And then and then what? And then new policies being in place uh, to clear more land and trees so that they, you would have that space after the runway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, these, this is dangerous stuff. See, I, I remember when you take me to movies and things. You're going to need to... <laughs> give me some leeway back at some point in the future if i get my podcast back we'll see we'll see i mean now the the listeners are getting an insight into our uh social outings where you talk about like nuclear disaster and i talk about plane crashes it's really a lot of fun uh, <laughs> it's a great great time um but you're i mean you're right about the trees you're also right about you know speed like not having enough speed i mean airspeed is critical to flight um and it's really you know, being able to have enough air flowing over the wings um, to, to be able to sustain lift. I understand why they did this scene. It was it was very cool and dramatic. It was kind of fun to watch Air Force One like careening around. But this is something I would have expected from a, a snakes on a plane type movie and not from a serious action movie. And I am surprised and disappointed if Harrison Ford is out there listening to the <laughs> super critical, oh, sorry, the super critical angle of attack podcast, I am I am surprised that he would have like let them through this. I don't know why any pilot would have allowed this to go through, but I guess he was getting paid a lot, so whatever. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't in that scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, I just as as a further like afterthought to this this dumpster fire of a scene. Afterwards, the pilots get back in the air and like almost immediately they clear everything. The guy who's flying, he kind of like lets out a sigh of relief, mm-hmm. like they made it, but. They're like flying over an Air Force base and people are going to shoot at them with missiles. And also takeoff is the most critical and dangerous part of the flight where you also need to have your full attention. And this dude probably has no idea how to fly a 747. So hmm. it's just re- totally ridiculous. Like I- I'm it, it really um, it really knocked this movie down a peg for me, unfortunately. So that that scene was the, the D.I. scene on the cake for you. <laughs> you. You could you could say that, Tim. <laughs> I would. Um so that's kind of my thought on some of the nonsense here in this movie, but you know, I want to, I want to get your thoughts, Tim, on, uh, on this. And, and, you know, we, we used to have uh, on this old podcast that we won't talk about anymore here. Uh, cause, cause we're, we're moving forward. Uh, <laughs> the, the, we used to have the parking lot discussion. Let's have the, the tarmac or the apron discussion. So it's, you know, it's after the flight, you know, we've just landed, we we've come down the stairs of the airplane. We're you know we're standing on the tarmac and and talking about how things went. So. We're talk we're talking about the in flight movie. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, what did you watch? Um, so I guess first question: uh, Is it feasible that terrorists would be able to infiltrate Air Force One and wreak the kind of havoc they did? And and like, why would they want to hijack Air Force One anyway in some kind of overly complex plot rather than just kind of trying to shoot the president somewhere or blow up his limo? Well, I think it makes sense from the the ransom side of wanting to uh, get General Raddick out. Uh, It seems like if they could pull this kind of operation off, you would just try to, one, kill the president 
and then that would cause conflict and instability um, in Russia because he was supposed to be like the guy that was supporting the new Russian president. So if you just kill the president, you're right, then you could just then use that chaos to break into prison. Uh, I don't know. I mean, from the perspective of, of if you have someone from the in the inside and you're able to hack biometrics and get pretend to be a, the Russian news crew that got killed that Gary Oldman's crew was able to replace you do all of those things for at least how that from the movie's logic it all kind of works you know well enough together I think that stuff that I loved the most about this movie was the interplay between Dean Stockwell's character the the, the defense de- department uh, chief who was like trying to basically declare the president in you know, unfit for office, like trying mm-hmm. to use the 25th Amendment uh, right. so that therefore we could shoot down Air Force One, keep Raddick, keep him in prison. Like that was one of my favorite pieces of this that they just eventually resolve because, you know, they save the day and everything. But I, I really like that side of it. I would have loved a little bit more nuke stuff in it in terms of uh, the potential for some sort of person making a nuclear conflict and decision making given that crazy uh, dynamic. Yeah. But no, I thought I, I thought it worked out pretty well um from the the movie's lot a lot of what i used to do in my uh, current job was we talked about how you would prevent insider threats to nuclear facilities so places where nuclear material is stored either at like a hospital um or at a nuclear power plant you know you have to worry about insider threats because anytime there's been an example of nuclear material being smuggled out of a facility and being sold or uh someone using blackmail to someone to try to get that material it's always been involved with an insider so having that, having somebody on the inside there, man, it would help quite a bit. So I have a lot of uh, sympathy for those those kinds of scenes that have insiders in there. It's just weird that the insider threat is this guy named Gibbs, who we never really understand <laughs> right. what his whole deal was. Yeah, I would have liked some more. Maybe maybe that would have helped it for me a little bit. Some more like explanation of this Gibbs guy and, and what you know what his beef was. A Gibbs prequel. Yeah, yeah they, we should do that. We should fund that one. <laughs> um, well, I guess um, you know, I guess. Uh, related to that, in terms of the setting of Air Force One, do you think part of that was just to kind of play off of some of the like fears and anxiety about flying or the general lack of knowledge about you know flying? Or do you think it was more kind of because of the iconic nature of, of Air Force One and, and its role in, in kind of popular consciousness? You know, Gabe, I think you're just being too uh, super critical here uh, because the average person who flies and knows about Air Force One and things doesn't think about all of those different things that you talked about, the cabin sure. pressure, this or that. But it's not that big of a deal. The big thing is, you know, plane almost land, terrorists get it, they fly off. It's a cool scene. So I, I think that it does a good job of all of those things. And I don't know why you have to feel like you have to nitpick movies like this. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. There's... I, I've heard some kind of, you know, discuss podcasts in the past that do something similar. So, yeah, maybe maybe I got it from there. So, all right, so we got to call it, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, we, we're going to do a ranking system here. Uh, we're going to do it in terms of escape pods. So one hmm. out of we do one, one to five escape pods, if you want to rate this. So one escape pod, it's pretty good. You're going to save yourself. Um, but but five will allow you to play some practical jokes on the people on the rescue team. They won't know where it is. Maybe you bring, you know, you send your family, you send some food down in another one. You can have a snack when you get down. It's how like many, a, it's many... like a shell game, right? Where you never know where, where, which one's left president going to pop out of. I get, I, 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 your tracks. Um, so what do you, what do you give this one? Oh, four, four escape pods. Uh, yeah. I think that this is a, a must see action movie. 
Um, even my uh, wife, um, who I hope to see at some point again in the future if I'm allowed to leave this basement, she enjoyed it, uh, which is a good test for me as a for an action movie that can reach a, a broad audience. Um, I really enjoyed it, uh, seeing it when I was in high school. I will show it to my son when he is old enough uh, at some point in the future. I think uh, the action sequences are great. The casting's great. Glenn Close is terrific. We didn't talk a lot about her uh, in the movie, but it, she's she's great. And for me, it's just got that right amount of new content that keeps me interested. Mm, that keeps it fresh. I, I hear you. Uh, I'm gonna have to go for as well. I think it would have been higher for me if it wasn't for the uh, some of the airplane nonsense. Uh, could have seen myself going 4.5, but uh, no, it's just a great you know late 90s action movie. Not overly complicated plot. You just get right into the action. Uh, well acted, but you know they they need to uh, they need to keep the airplane on in the air and not you know swerving around on the ground. Hmm. Is there some stuff that, that we want to talk to the uh, listeners out there we might want to recommend for further reading or, or listening or watching um, based sure. on this podcast? I've got something. Can I uh, can I recommend some things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recommend uh, a movie called Countdown to Licking Glass. It's uh, from 1984. It's a Canadian TV movie. Uh, but it's about when I talked earlier about those kind of national command post that's in the airplane. Uh, this follows kind of like a a movie that we covered on the former podcast, uh, Special Bulletin. It's all done like a TV broadcast, but of a terrorist incident involving nuclear hostage taking and those kinds of things. It feels like you're watching the, the news, basically, but it's a story that's being played out. Uh, Countdown to Looking Glass is very similar, and it follows some of the activities that are being taking place on, on uh, this big uh, airplane. So I recommend that one. You can get it on YouTube actually for free. I recommend an article in Defense One, which is a, an online uh, kind of newspaper magazine about defense issues called The Air Force's Doomsday Plane is in the shop from November 2019 talks about how hard it is for this very expensive and important airplane uh, to keep it in the air. It's it's very difficult uh, to be able to do that. And it kind of talks about all the different things that uh, you have to go about to do that, to keep that safe and, and in the air. And, and why not? Let's uh, recommend uh, Independence Day, a great movie that involves nukes, aviation, and the president of the United States. Um, Gabe, before you recommend your stuff, would you uh, recommend any sort of good flight simulator for people if they wanted to try their hand at flying Air Force One? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, well, Microsoft Flight Simulator, I think, is um, yeah one of the most well-known. Um, they, they're coming up with a new one. I use Flight Simulator 10, which is more than 10 years old at this point, but um, there's a new one coming out. And usually there's a lot of uh, online developer community, so you could probably find a, an Air Force One package that that you could uh, add on. Um, so, yeah, to, to get the full setup, I really recommend, you know, building your own full motion simulator at home. <laughs> uh, at least that's what I tried to tell my wife uh, that I was going to do, but, uh, yeah, I'm I'm well, still, still working on that one. You have uh, my support to uh, EMP harden your uh, simulator <laughs> against uh, the pulse of a nuclear blast. That that is uh, that is a very a very Tim Westmore advice. I appreciate that. What other advice do you have for people that listen to your podcast? Uh, yeah, I think um, uh, I found this interesting documentary um, from National Geographic from 2009 called Onboard Air Force One. And even though it's a bit dated, the airplane really hasn't changed much. Um, it seems to be available for free on YouTube. Um, we'll put the link up, I think, in the show notes. Um, and also, just to give you a sense of the inside, CBS News did this really good photo tour of Air Force One, kind of going through all the different areas. So you can kind of see some of the stuff from the movie and kind of compare it. We'll, we'll also put the link up there. 
And, you know, if you want to try to have a look at the real thing, um, you know, we mentioned the quote from, uh, I think, somebody involved in this museum, but the National Museum of the Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, they have uh, SAM 26,000 on display. Um, they, also, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, it's probably near to where you grew up, Tim. My, my parents uh, are members of that museum, and they go like twice a year. <laughs> That's uh, great. And they love sending me stuff. They're, they're hardcore Democrats, but they just love this museum, uh, and they send it to me, little gift things from there all the time. That's cool. Well, have they sent you a picture of uh, SAM 27000, which is on display there? Um that uh, I think that's uh, that's where the other one is. Those are the two original 707 aircraft that were serving as Air Force One, so you can see those. And if you live in the Washington, D.C. area, there's also this place called um, the Air Force One Experience in hmm. Fort Washington, Maryland, near National Harbor. They have a 747 park there that they've done kind of a replica inside. I haven't been. Uh, it seems to get kind of mixed reviews online, but... You know, once we're done social distancing and you want to go out, could be something to check out. That sounds terrific. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Tim, for joining me here on the the inaugural episode, the the test flight, I should say. I think it was a <laughs> successful test flight of the um, Super Critical Angle of Attack podcast. Do you have any plugs you'd like to share? Well, sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Westmeyer, which is W E S T M Y E R. Uh, I used to have the Supercritical Podcast, uh, so you can you can follow that uh, at the archive at Nuclear Podcast. I appreciate you having me on your show. Uh, can I just uh, get one more quick uh, plug in here, real quick? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Absolutely. Get off my podcast. Ah! You had your fun on April first, uh, twenty twenty. I'm, I'm gonna let you do the outro, but. This is nonsense. I'm 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 taking the back over here. For for those listening, Tim has not strangled me with a parachute, thankfully. But uh, um, only yeah. be- only because of social distancing, I couldn't get a cord long enough. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for letting me do this, Tim. Thanks for letting me um, yeah take you hostage for for a couple hours here. I thought this was a lot of fun. Great. Well, uh, take us out. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Super Critical Angle of Attack podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, too bad, because this was a special edition of the podcast for April Fools. Unless it becomes the most listened to episode (laughs) of the podcast, in that scenario, this is your captain speaking now. Until next time, this has been Gabe. And Tim Westmeyer. And remember, if it is pop culture and it flies, we are bound to take a super critical angle of attack on it. Have a good one.